Welcome to the teaching ministry of Reverend JFK Mensah, a seasoned Bible teacher with over 40 years of ministry experience. He is a pastor, a church planter, a missionary, and an international conference speaker. He is passionate about making Christ-like disciples worldwide. JFK Mensah is the general overseer of Great Commission Church International. May you be transformed as you listen to the Word of God. Holy Spirit, we bless you for today and for the opportunity to be gathered virtually in your presence. We pray that as we discuss this very important topic, your spirit will lead the discussion and let it be edifying for everyone who has tuned in today. In Jesus' name, amen. So please, our first question for today is, what is Christian marriage? Christian marriage is when two born-again Christians, not just nominal churchgoers, people who have experienced the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, are united by covenant in marriage so that they no longer travel lives pathway as single individuals, but as one flesh, as the Bible says. And these two must necessarily, according to the Bible, Genesis 1, 26, 27, they were created male and female. So essentially, Christian marriage has to do with a man and a woman, one woman and one man. And it's a lifelong commitment which demonstrates Jesus' commitment to the church. Christian marriage is not just about the love or the joy of the individual's concern. It is this couple painting the picture of Jesus' love for his church, his bride. We display, so to speak, the negative on earth. So that after this physical experience, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, the church will be married forever to its bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Right. Amen. Thank you very much, Mama. I think that's a very clear definition. But I think it also raises the next issue, that must marriage necessarily be between a man and a woman? What of lesbian and gay marriages that we are hearing of all over the world today? Does that then not qualify as marriage? Must marriage necessarily be between a man and a woman? The definition of marriage for the Christian is necessarily between a man and a woman. Three biblical reasons. 
the first is Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 from verse 3 to verse 9 refers back to God's institution of marriage in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 the Bible says therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. I'm trying to establish that Jesus Christ is definite that the Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 story is the conscience of Christianity. That he who made them in the beginning made them male and female. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26 and 27 where God said let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the earth so God made man in his own likeness male and female created he them So, gender, to be a man or woman, and sex, and sexual organs have divine origin. We are not men and women by choice. We are men and women by creation by divine intention and purpose. Two, it is God who instituted marriage. Genesis chapter 2, from verse 18, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a suitable helper. Because of that, no country, no parliament, no authority on earth can legislate marriage between man and man or between woman and woman. They don't have that right. Just like you cannot legislate sunrise and sunset without originating and instituting marriage, no institution can recognize a marriage pattern that they did not create. So, the scripture is very clear. 
Now, I want to add this, that sodomy and homosexuality, lesbianism, is not new. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah for that. And way from the Old Testament, we hear of the people in Gibeah, Judges chapter 19 and Genesis chapter 19, involved in men trying to sleep with men. So it's not new. God has always been against it. And is against it now. Because he says in Malachi 3.6, I the Lord, I change not. And Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the convictions of Jesus in Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10, they are his statement on same-sex marriages. And then the creation story, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, are the biblical statement on sexism and gender. Yeah. Okay, the New Testament passages are also clear. In Romans chapter 1, from verse 26 and 27, then in First Corinthians chapter 6, from verse 9 to verse 11, First Timothy chapter 1, from verse 10 and 11, we see clear Bible verses against homosexuality and sodomy and lesbianism, even in the New Testament. And that adds up to the Old Testament legislation in Leviticus chapter uh, 20. And these passages are too clear for us to deny that Christianity does not recognize biblically gay marriages or same-sex marriages. Thank you very much. Thank you too very much, Apostle, for that clarification. Um, I believe that as we are talking about the topic of reducing divorce rates, it's important, first of all, to clarify what we are talking about when we talk about Christian marriage. Um, Following on from there, our next question is that can a Christian marry an unbeliever when there's no Christian, we are talking about the opposite sex, someone of the opposite sex. There's no Christian who is showing interest in them. Can they go ahead and marry an unbeliever? Unfortunately, the Bible does not allow that. The child of God is not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Even from the Old Testament times, God preserved his people. They were not supposed to intermarry 
with strange women or for that matter strange men from other nations the Hittites, the Gigatites and all of that so even where we don't have enough Christian marriage partners with our God all things are possible the Christian lady or man for that matter will necessarily have to wait upon the Lord until the way Eve was brought to Adam, God would bring uh, his or her own godly partner along. So, Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, says, We should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39, even allows somebody whose spouse is dead to remarry, but in the Lord. This means that for the Christian, marriage is not everything. You don't lose your personhood because you are not married. Jesus was never married. John the Baptist was never married. But they lived full lives. Elijah was never married. Elisha was never married. Paul was never married. So marriage does not increase your value as a human being. No matter what African parents and relatives may say, you can still fulfill God's calling on your life, even if you are not married. In the same way, marriage also is not supposed to interfere with your spirituality. Because Noah was married, but he was the most righteous person on earth. Job was married. Look at his record. God could boast about Job to Satan, even though he was married. Abraham was married. Peter was married. Therefore, it is wrong to fill your heart and mind with the idea that if you are not married, you are not a complete human being. That is not true. Then Jesus was not a full human being. So, Nobody should, out of desperation for marriage, just go and marry anybody outside because you desperately need a marriage partner. Thank you very much, Apostle JFK and Mama Georgina, for those wonderful and insightful answers. Our next question involves the issue of vows, vows. We are asking that if marriage does involve vows, what is God's position on vows? What is God's position on marriage vows? God does not want us to be rash with our mouths. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 18, 19. Even the works of your hands can be destroyed. 
because of your vows that you you make and you don't pay. And a classic passage in Numbers chapter 30 from verse 2 all the way to 16 involving uh, a lady unmarried in her father's house as well as a married woman in the husband's house. And then a man, if you speak out words, they can bind your soul, particularly in the case of men, in that Numbers 30 passage. That is why Jephthah had to uh, sacrifice his only uh, child, a daughter, because of the rash vow he made. So when it comes to marriage, unless the Bible explicitly supports or gives a ground for a divorce. The marriage vow is something which God holds against you. And Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, all the way to verse 17, the wife of your youth, you must be careful about the way you handle her. So God is very, very serious with the vows we take before we marry. Amen. We now come to the meat of this series of discussions. And we want to ask, what is the Bible's actual position on divorce? Okay. The Bible's position on divorce is anti-divorce. Why do we say that? Three main reasons. The first is that Jesus explained in Matthew chapter 19, reading from verse 6 to verse 8, that the one who made them in the beginning not only made them male and female, but said, wherefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. What therefore God has put together, let not man put asunder. And the Pharisees were asking, why did Moses allow them to issue a certificate of divorce. And Jesus said, it is for the hardness of their hearts. Because in the beginning, it was not so. So, let's look at the three reasons Jesus gave. Reason number one is that when you marry somebody, and become sexually united with the person, there is a soul tie. First Corinthians 6.16 puts it neatly. He says, when you unite yourself with a prostitute, you become one flesh with her. Whenever you are sexually involved with a woman, There is a soul tie. Number two, 
Jesus said, what God has put together, man should not put asunder. This means that there is a recognition of heaven's hand upon marriages. And any attempt to dissolve a marriage in God's eyes constitutes fighting God. But three reasons Jesus gives is that Moses allowed certificate of divorce because of sin and hardness of heart. But in the beginning, it was not so. These three reasons, coupled with the vow which uh, Mrs. Mensah has just discussed, whenever there is a Christian marriage, they take a vow. And Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 5, argues that it is better not to vow than to vow and not perform it. So, God expects that you will keep your vow. If you vow before God in the presence of witnesses and you cannot keep the vow, then neither heaven nor human beings ever trust you again. Because you will break the next vow. If you break your vow to God in the presence of witnesses, you will break any vow to any human being. So, these arguments make it such that as far as Christian marriages are concerned, nobody should enter a Christian marriage with the understanding that you are going to divorce. When you enter, there must be an understanding that it is lifelong, it is for better or for worse, it is for richer or poorer, it is till death do us part. Anything else is not Christian marriage. Um, If I may say, as the disciples said once, that this is a hard teaching. And I'm going to ask my final follow-up question, after which we'll open the floor for participants to also ask their questions. But my question is, are you really saying that there is no situation under which a Christian can ever get divorced? Does it mean that a Christian can never divorce or get divorced? Once again, we go back to the scripture. Jesus gives us an exception clause that marital unfaithfulness, which the Greek word uses pornia, from which we get pornography, is one ground for divorce. The second ground 
is in First Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 12 to verse 15 where a believer-unbeliever marriage going through stress when the unbeliever wants to get out of the marriage, Paul says, God has called us to peace. Therefore, allow the divorce process to go. Now, let me come to explain. Yes, these two passages and grounds for divorce are clear in the New Testament. But there are three thorny issues associated with them. The first is that Jesus says in the same breath that anybody who marries a divorcee is committing adultery with that person. Number two, the same First Corinthians chapter 7 from verse 10, Paul tells us that the Lord says that the husband should not put away his wife and the wife should not divorce the husband. The Christian position is to discourage divorce in marriage any time it crops up. Because God hates divorce, like we mentioned in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. God hates divorce. And so, if you take the two together, you can see that when there is a supposed Christian marriage, but the infidelity level is such that the other partner is virtually prostituting, then there is a basis for divorce, but no individual, that's the second point, should take divorce into his or her own hands as a Christian and go ahead and divorce. You need local church authority. Because Jesus says in Matthew 18, from verse 15 to 18, that if your brother sins against you, go and talk over the matter with him. If there is no understanding, take two or three witnesses. And if there is no understanding still, tell it to the church. And let the church come in. It's wrong for any Christian to just get up and, and say, I'm divorcing. Who are you? What right have you to do that? You see? You need to go and report the issue to the church authority and let them come in. Now, the church authority too should be guided by the Bible. They should not just go ahead and say, okay, we understand, you can divorce. But at, at least 
it, it yeah. means that it is not a selfish lifestyle for you to just decide you are divorcing because you want to divorce. If there is abuse in the relationship, if there is a problem in the relationship, it must go to the necessary Christian authorities so that they can sit down on the case and do what they biblically feel is right to do. I have read through some of the annulments and conditions for divorce among Christians. And we need to find out why there is so much allowance and looseness in resolving these problems. I can give you a case in point. One of our pastors in our church had a difficult marriage problem. His wife went mental. After five years, when she had left the house and would not come back, the husband came to the church and applied to marry again. When we as church authorities sat on the case, we said, no, wait, your wife is still alive. Let us see what God can do. As I speak now, after more than six years of being a mental patient, this woman is totally healed. And she has gone back to the husband and they are married. And it, I mean, you wouldn't know that there is no problem. So this is just one of the cases. Anytime we allow divorce to go ahead without really waiting upon God and seeking his face, we are fighting heaven because what God has put together, let not man put asunder. If there is sexual promiscuity and one party is really out into adultery, let the church sit on the case. If it is an unbeliever versus believer marriage, let the church sit on the case and examine the case. Sometimes the Christian in the marriage is misbehaving so that the unbeliever partner can say, I divorce you, and then he or she can go and marry another Christian. It's wrong. What about the children? So the Bible gives two grounds for divorce. Adultery and unbeliever, believer relationship which deteriorates. But it does not mean that any Christian anywhere in the world should just get up and divorce. The matter must go to the church authorities. They must seek the face of the Lord 
and use biblical standards to find out whether there is justification. Otherwise, the counsel in the first Corinthians 7, 12 to 15 is stay unmarried or get back into reconciliation. Full stop. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Apostle. Yes, this is serious indeed, Danny. <laughs> this is very serious. All right. So I'm going to pause here on the questions that I have and open up the floor. Already in the chat box is blowing up. <laughs> There's so many fascinating questions um, that are there. Let me try and go back to the first few. The first two had to do with the vows. Someone was asking, so where from the vows that pastors lead couples to say? Is it compulsory to say those vows? And then the second person is asking, what about the other extreme where some vows these days are only about good things and they completely exclude the bad things? What, what would you have to answer to both of them, please? Let's read the Malachi chapter 2 from verse 14 to 16. Malachi chapter 2 from verse 14 to 16. Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 to 16. Is that it? Says, yet you say for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yes, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Yes. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take it to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You see, the scripture calls her the wife of your youth and the wife of covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Therefore, if there is no vow, then there is no point of entry. Human beings, and for that matter, Christians, are not like sheep and cows and hens and cocks that you just see a woman and say I love you she says I love you and the next day she parks and is living with you no even traditional life and the pre-christian culture and non-christian culture recognizes cultural marriage but the nation has laws binding on married couples. And they need a time you vow to one another to record the marriage 
so that the state can recognize it and use it to deal with you, share property, and work with your children. But above all, the Christian is bought by Jesus Christ. The first Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, chapter 7 verse 23, first Peter chapter 1 verse 18 and 19. Every Christian has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Therefore you are not your own. Second Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 says, the love of Christ constrains us that since one died for all, all died that we who live should no longer live for ourselves. Romans chapter 14, verse 7 to 9. He says, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. The marriage vow is necessary and important because you have been bought by Jesus. The woman you are marrying has been bought by Jesus. The relationship between the two of you has got to have a divine stamp that releases you. This is why you need to marry before witnesses of the church, the body of Christ. Because you are a member of the body of Christ. You are not just a Christian on your own. Therefore, the marriage vow is a necessary part of assigning before God and men one Christian woman to one Christian man. And the vow is critical because of the times ahead. Because the challenges of marriage are not from today. So the Pharisees were asking in Mark 10 and Matthew 19 that, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for any reason? It means divorce issues are older than 2,000 years. So the vow locks you in so that you will stay to finish till death will part you. But the final argument is from Romans chapter 7, verse 2. It says that as long as one partner is alive, in marriage, you are bound to that partner. But if the partner dies, you are now released from the law and can marry another person and not be called an adulterer. This means that the marriage vow itself has a place for keeping you until you die. Then, when one party dies, the other is released. If there is no point or at no time in your life did you ever vow to a woman or a man in marriage, then when did you become bound by law to her or to him? Now, that answers the question of the watered-down vows that we have today for richer, for richest, for health, and always in health. 
because they don't want to stay in sickness and in health for poorer, for richer. Fortunately for us, even though there is no spelled out marriage vow in the Bible, three times Genesis 2.24 is quoted. It says, Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This means that the option of divorcing your wife because you married for richer for richest, and now poverty has come, and you didn't take the vow on poverty. Your vow was on richer and richest. Therefore, you are leaving the marriage. Christianity does not give you that room. You did not originate Christianity. And the Bible doesn't owe you a debt. If you want to obey it, better do it. If you don't want to obey the Bible, then leave it alone. If you are a Christ follower, you want to obey him. Jesus says in Luke six forty six, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't want to obey me? So please, water down marriage vows for convenience. Do not in any way annul the fact that Christian marriage is till death parts you, and you are one flesh, and what God has put together in sickness, in health, in poverty, and in wealth. And under all circumstances, you are supposed to stick together till death parts you. It's an unwritten Christian commitment in marriage. Thank you very much. I see one hand up for now. You can speak before we return to the questions in the chat box. Good evening. Um, please, so I have three questions. And uh, the first one has to do with uh, Daddy mentioning that when anyone wants to take a divorce um, or there are issues in the marriage, it should it should be um, it should go before the church council for them to address whatever issues there are. Um, but from the little I know, I am yet to know a church council who has sat on issues with couples and, and, and allowed them to go their separate ways, as in giving them divorce. I haven't heard of any yet. So they go on and on and on with it with this same scripture saying that God hates divorce and that they cannot take, and they try to amend whatever differences they have. And people get frustrated. People live with heart-related issues and eventually even die. And we may not necessarily even know that these are the causes of death, but people get really frustrated. And church leaders never get to give them divorce. So people have come to know that this doesn't help. They may take it there all right, but when it's dragging, they find their own ways. And this is not necessarily a question, but I am just pointing this out to say that if 
it happens to me and I know that my issue will just go on and on and on. Meanwhile, they are not with us and they don't necessarily know the problems. I, I may just want to opt out and disobeying them, which would be unfortunate. But if church council would, would learn to be objective, well, I think the Bible stands taller than, than human objectivity though. But yes, this is my concern about sending issues to the church council. Now, my second question, Daddy, I want to ask, what is there for believers who get divorced and then go ahead and get married? What, what would be their state in, 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 in terms of salvation? Because I think I know a couple of believers, it's like these days, they don't really mind. They get divorced and after a while, they find themselves in... Um, another marriage. And then the last one I want to ask, um, we have made it clear that we shouldn't be yoked with unbelievers. I want to ask to what extent are we, are we asking people to become believers before we get married to them? I am asking because if I want to get married to a young man and he's not a believer, uh, he may decide to say that, okay, I want to do this for you or for, for God. And he comes to accept Christ. But we only enter the marriage and um, he would either mess up or be worse off than I met him. And I could equally meet an unbeliever who is understanding, uh, who respects me, who does all the things because then we have similarities and he's good and all but not necessarily a believer but goes with me to church and eventually becomes born again and I could also follow the um, the principle of the fact that he must be a believer and then he comes to do it just because he get married to me and we entered the marriage and he's something else I, I don't know if I have communicated and if you understand me that he Thank you very much. I will answer my part and give my wife the floor. Number one is such inability to control and prevent divorce. Yes, I am a church person. There are many times the church has woefully failed to play her part in stopping divorce. But Many young couples who want to enter into marriage do not want to follow the church's precepts. Some start sleeping with one another before they bring the the lady for marriage counseling. Some have already made their choice and they won't listen to any other person. Some do not submit themselves to marriage counseling at all. Some are not interested in postmarital counseling. They won't present themselves. Some begin dating, kissing, and are wild by the time they draw near any man of God or church. And all the precautions they should take, they don't. 95% of divorces are from the way people enter marriage. Computer language, giggle. Garbage in, 
garbage out. You see, if you don't enter the marriage properly after the, the wedding, every day you are at the pastor's door. We sit on marriage problems and challenges, sometimes from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. At the time they were getting married, they will not involve you that way. They don't have enough time. But when there are problems in the marriage, they expect the church to solve it. And this is a challenge. We must all look at it. Yes, the church is not a perfect institution. But at least obey the rules. Just like the government. The government is not a perfect institution. But obey the traffic laws. If you say, because the government is not doing this, is not doing that. Therefore, when the traffic light is red, I will drive through it. You occasion accidents. And you blame the government. So, that is my personal comment. Now, the issue of brothers who pretend to be born again in order to marry a girl, and sisters who pretend to be godly in order to marry a brother. I normally tell my story that if you go to the night market with a counterfeit money, somebody has come to that night market with roasted vulture serving as roasted chicken. And because you are in a hurry for the transaction, you quickly offer your counterfeit money, and the person also quickly offers his roasted vulture, and the two of you disappear and leave no trail behind. It is when you get home that you see that you have bought roasted vulture, and he too finds out that he has got counterfeit money. Why would you like to change a brother or a sister in order to marry the person? It's wrong from the beginning. When you are spiritually older and stronger than somebody, you need to be careful. If the man is the one you have just led to Christ, no matter how born again he is, he is spiritually younger than you. But when he comes to the home as your husband, he is the head of the home. So he rules. And all your complaints that he is not behaving the way you want, nobody will listen to you, at least not heaven, because you went for him. In the same way, the ratio of unmarried girls, in fact, the African ratio of girls who will never get married until they die, is about 30% on the average. This means that some ladies will intentionally enter a Christian church in order to grab a Christian husband. So they will do anything to show they have changed, sing the right songs, and dress the right way until they are married. 
and then they show you their true color. And it happens with the men and with the women. So, once God says, don't be unequally yoked, if it is God who is giving you a marriage partner, wait for God. Let him bring that marriage partner. And let it be a witness in your heart that this is God. I don't know if I have attempted all your questions, but amen. Amen. You did. And uh, the last one about what is there for those who um, get divorced and get married again? Despising that they shouldn't get married. Let's let's read it. After they are divorced. Let's read it. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verses 32 and 33. I think the words of Jesus are final. I cannot improve that. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is supposed to, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Okay. This is what we normally call the Sermon on the Mount, and the words are from the mouth of Jesus. Let's read the Matthew 19, verses 9 and 10. Matthew 19, 9 and 10. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. Now, you have to see that Jesus is repeating this, and it is within the context of Matthew alone. And the disciples heard him clearly. So they said, if this is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry at all. They understood him well. The way our youth rush into marriage, you would think there is nothing important about it. And they rush out in divorce and rush to remarry. As if they brought Christianity and the Bible into this world. I I don't think I can improve what Jesus said. Thank you. Thank you so much, Apostle and Mrs. JFK Mensa. God bless you so much for the insights. Apostle, I want to ask this question, finally, just to summarize everything. You know, earlier on, we're learning that Christian marriage involves two born-again Christians. In case some of us are here, through listening to scriptures and listening to these insights and wisdom, we've realized that 
not at any point in our lives have we ever asked Jesus to come into our hearts. We've realized that even our foundations, we can't see Jesus as the center. Would you please help us to realign tonight within some few minutes? Um, Probably there are people who are so desperate to make it right, right now with God, as single people, as married people. Would you please help us? Thank you. Okay. This is very critical. There is a way in which a change in the heart and in the mind and becoming a new creation only happens when the blood of Jesus washes your sin. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you recognize this night that you are a sinner and that you need a savior, then the reason Jesus came is for you. He said in Luke 19.10, the son of man is come to seek and save the lost. This night, I want to pray with you wherever you are to recognize that you are a sinner, to admit that the work of Jesus on the cross was for you and to ask Jesus to come and be the Lord of your life. When he comes in, he washes your sins with his blood He makes you a new person. He puts his Holy Spirit within you. And Jesus becomes the center of your life. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I can share with you. That the past. 39 half years. With my wife. Have been through thick and thin. We have learned over the years. That only Jesus. Can hold a marriage together. In this 21st century. Without his enabling grace and power, you can even live under the same but be miles apart in your heart. If you want me to pray with you, I want you to respectfully bow your head and say these words with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I recognize I am a sinner. But you came to die on the cross for my sins. Today, I turn to you. I accept you as my Lord and my personal Savior. 
Lord Jesus, please come into my heart. Wash my sins with your blood. Make me a new person. Give me the power to live for you alone. And fill me with your Holy Spirit. Heal my marriage. And break the power of divorce over my home. In Jesus' name. Now let me pray with you. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you for any child of yours out there who is struggling in marriage and has decided to turn to you. Your word is sure that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I ask that even this night, the blood of Jesus will flow freely in Jesus' name. Every chain, every chain, every addiction holding Amen. you in bondage. You in the name of Jesus. Amen. I rebuke you. Break in Jesus' Amen. name. And every resistance to family life I come against you in the name of Jesus. That even this night, you will give them an encounter with yourself, which passes all understanding to keep their mind and hearts and make a difference in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. Amen. Follow JFK Mensa Ministries on Facebook and YouTube and invite others to listen to his podcast. You can also access some of JFK Mensa's books and keep up with his ministry at www.jfkmensaministries.org. God bless you.